Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Glad to have all of you with us for uh, Political Rewind today. Uh, we continue, I suppose, to say this is another special edition, an election edition of Political Rewind. Um, it's not surprising, I think, based on what we all talked about in the weeks before the election, that we are continuing to count ballots in this state as our key states around the country and uh, the outcome of several important races, not the least of which, of course, is the presidential race are uh, still up in the air. Um, Let me give you a quick update on where things stand right now in Georgia. Um, President Trump leads here, um, you know, again, I know numbers are not the easiest thing to uh, talk about on the radio, so I'll just put it this way. President Trump leads Joe Biden by about, uh, I guess, about 18,000 votes, according to an update from the Secretary of State's office for about eight minutes ago, uh, but counting continues to go on. He's at 49.5% to Joe Biden's Uh, 49.2%. We're going to talk a lot more about that race in a couple of minutes. And then in the U.S. Senate race that everybody's been watching very, very closely, the issue has been all along not whether somebody's going to go over 50% necessarily, Um, That's the way we went into this. The poll suggested that it looked like uh, John Ossoff and David Perdue were locked in a tie at around 45, 46 percent. Of course, what we've really been watching since Tuesday night is David Perdue has hovered just above 50 percent. He continues to barely be above 50 percent right now. He's at 50.03 percent to Ossoff's 48 percent. Um, Purdue leads by 115,000 votes, and as more and more votes continue to come in, we, we think there's a lot of Democratic votes out there, and it very likely means that Purdue is going to come down under 50%, which would force a runoff in that race, just as we're going to see a runoff in the uh, Senate race number two between Kelly Leffler and Raphael Warnock. We'll talk about those races and more with our panel. Let's introduce everybody and get started. Um, oh, one other quick note. We are going to be back with you live at 2 o'clock. We're not going to rebroadcast this show as we typically do. There's just too much going on. There's too much flux in all the numbers. So uh, we'll see you again uh, at 2 o'clock live. Kevin Riley, editor of the AJC, is with us, as he is on most Thursdays. Kevin, busy, busy time for our team of journalists at GPB, and yours have been working nonstop as well. Yeah, Bill, it's good to be with you this morning. It's even better to still be standing. So um, uh, uh, you sound good, and I can tell on our uh, video chat here that you look good. So I was uh, worried about how much longer this is going to go on. No, this is exciting. Are you kidding? This is about the most exciting time that we as journalists, I think political journalists, have is covering elections. I wonder if you'd agree with that, Kyle Hayes, of Peach Pod fame. Are you uh, enjoying watching things unfold? I'm enjoying watching things unfold, and I'm, I'm struggling to remember the last time an election wasn't down to the wire in Georgia. It seems like we're getting closer and closer by yeah. the year. Uh, we should tell people that Peach Pod is a terrific podcast about Georgia politics. Uh, and uh, Kyle is a native of Georgia, went to the University of Georgia, now works in Washington, but continues to pay great attention to the state. So 
I, I really recommend that Peach Pod is a podcast you may want to subscribe to. Um, all right. We also are very fortunate to have on the show two newly reelected members of the Georgia General Assembly. Uh, we're, and we're so glad to have them uh, back. Um, Jen Jordan, State Senator Jen Jordan of State Senate District Number Six, you won your race with about sixty-two percent of the vote. Not bad, Senator. Not bad. No, it, especially if you consider that it was um, it was a Republican district. You know, uh, before I flipped it in seventeen, so Hunter Hill was the former state senator, um, and so. People, I look a, a little bit different than him, and my ideology is, too. Okay. So, yeah, happy to be here. Well, in fact, uh, both you and our final panelists, who I'll introduce in a second, really represent shifting demographics in some ways. In one case, uh, you took advantage of those. In the case of our uh, final panelist, Chuck Evstration, Representative Evstration, who just won re-election in House District 104, uh, you bucked the trends up there in Gwinnett County. Um, first of all, welcome to the show, uh, Representative Evstration, and congratulations on your reelection. Bill, thank you so much for having me back. Very excited to see the results and that we won. There were a lot of our reports that questioned whether uh, we'd be able to win our reelection, and I'm excited that our predictions and, and uh, what I said on your show previously that we were confident uh, came true. So thank you for having me. So with those things in mind, uh, Jen Jordan, Cobb County is a big part of your district. What's the population uh, breakdown, essentially? How much, uh, uh, how many voters in Cobb compared to the other parts of the district? So in terms of my district, um, Fulton County is about 50% and Cobb County is about 50%. I have 152,000 registered voters total, um, so 75, 75. Um, got about 50,000 votes out of Fulton so far and 50,000 out of Cobb. So really good turnout um, in terms of my part of the district. And also, you know, Cobb County, you, you want to talk about flipping. I mean, the countywide races there all went Democratic. And we now are going to have an all-woman um, Cobb County commission um, with three of those women being women of color. So uh, talk about times changing. Well, that is precisely why I asked you about the composition of the district. Uh, you, you do reflect uh, how dramatically Cobb County has shifted from red to blue. And Lisa Cupid uh, becomes the first African first woman chair of the county and certainly the first African-American uh, chair of Cobb County. And Chuck Evstration, on the other hand, uh, you're surrounded now by Democrats in Gwinnett County. Uh, your, your county uh, a board is now essentially a Democratic board, uh, and yet you were able to uh, hang on and win re-election as a Republican. What? How, how did you manage to do that, uh, Chuck? Well, as uh, we've discussed before, I think voters, particularly in local elections, really look at your record, the effectiveness of the policies uh, you've brought forward, and your responsiveness to the needs of the community. The way I view it is uh, Gwinnett County went for Hillary Clinton in 2016, so there's no real surprise that Gwinnett uh, voted Democrat this time. But the key takeaway is Georgia Republicans are governing effectively in the state. And uh, Democrats targeted legislators like me in an effort to flip uh, the Georgia General Assembly, and that effort fell flat. And so I think Georgians are very happy with the leadership that they're seeing at the state capitol, and that was reflected in the election results uh, this week. 
Well, again, I'm glad that both of you uh, newly reelected uh, members uh, could be with us today. Kevin, uh, Georgia, there was a period of time when people wondered what the heck Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, uh, Barack Obama were doing coming into Georgia in the final weeks of the election when they could have spent their time elsewhere. What's really uh, interesting is that as we continue counting today here and in states around the country, this whole election very well could rest in the hands of Georgia, Kevin. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Um, and I think as Kyle pointed out, here we are again in a statewide election where it's going on and on and on, just like we saw in the governor's race two years ago. And now it's down to, uh, I guess it's, uh, you, you said, Bill, right, 18 or uh, 17 or 18,000 votes now, right? And if we go back, yeah, I mean, don't forget that when Kemp and Stace, uh, Governor Kemp and Stacey Abrams had that uh, that race a couple of years ago, you know, that came down to just uh, the margin was 55,000 votes of 4 million cast. This is even tighter than that as we sit here today. So it's really, really <laughs> amazing to see it. Is this the time and the, the long, the long conversation about Georgia getting to blue? Is this the, is this the time it's going to happen? Yeah. And I think that, you know, we're, we're starting to see come to fruition the work of, of, Democratic groups that have registered voters across the state. We saw record-breaking turnout in the state this time. Um, and at the same time, you know, Republicans have not reacted to increased Democratic enthusiasm by sort of backing off. You know, President Trump motivated his voters to come out in, in more rural parts of the state. I think as we're, you know, as we sit here this morning and we're thinking about the counting of the final votes coming in, a lot of the enthusiasm that President Trump generated for voters in rural parts of the state, those have already been counted. And part of the reason you're watching this dynamic this morning of shrinking margins as the final votes come in is they're coming from areas that likely predominantly backed Joe Biden. And that's why this thing's coming down to the wire. Uh, Jen, according to uh, uh, AJC reporter uh, Mark Nisi, who has been following uh, this race very closely, there <laughs> As of this morning, there are about 51,000 absentee votes that remain to be counted in the state. And um, we know that Fulton County expects now, they've announced they're going to have their returns back to us uh, by no later than noon today. And we do expect a lot of those remaining votes in Fulton to go to, to Joe Biden. And I think Brad Raffensperger is planning on uh, talking at about 10.15 this morning. I'm not quite sure if he himself since most of the voting comes out of the county offices, I'm not quite sure what his message will be, but maybe he'll have some uh, uh, words to give us that will give us a sense of how long, how much longer we should expect this race to go on, Jen. Yeah, I mean, we're just waiting on the counties right now, but specifically in terms of where the the kind of the these tranches of votes are, um, you know, 17,000 in Chatham County, over 7,000 in Clayton, um, 6,500 in Gwinnett, over 1,000 in Rockdale, um, Stewart, 1,200. So all of those places are counties that really broke for Biden anyway. And then um, with and because they're the absentee votes, too, we know that those tend to favor Democrats as well. Um, so it is looking um, really good for um, the Biden-Harris team, um, but it's going to be close regardless. 
Well, as results are still coming in, and as we've always said, it's important that every vote is, uh, that all votes are counted, that there's an opportunity for uh, the process to work and, and that um, folks are patient while the, while the process uh, works through. I think that uh, it's important to note that um, the, the margins and the number of votes that are coming in are unlikely to sway the ultimate outcome as I look at the numbers right now. And I think that um, the, the key takeaway is uh, certainly as a legislator and focus on leadership at the state capitol, that we're going to continue to have Republican leadership in both houses uh, of the General Assembly, and we'll have continuity uh, really uh, based upon the policies and, and uh, the great action that's, uh, that's been coming from the Capitol in recent years. Uh, that's, uh, that's certainly my takeaway today. I got a question. Just, just I'm to be clear, ask. Kevin, before you jump in, just to, just before you jump in, Kevin, to be clear, when you say the outcome won't change much, you don't mean that we may not have a Joe Biden presidency. You're just saying in the state of Georgia, Republicans will continue to be the controlling force in in the legislator legislature. I just right. want to make We're, sure we clarify what you meant. Yeah, thank you. And, and I'm, my focus is really at the state capitol right right now. The um, uh, Democrat effort had been to try to flip the state ca- leadership at the state capitol, and uh, it looks like there would only be a net gain of one in the House, instead, despite uh, the fact that, that votes are, are still coming in. So that's nowhere close to the margin necessary to change leadership. Yeah. Hey, I'm going to I'm going to follow up on one thing. I think we'll get back to that balance of power in the state house bill a little bit later in our conversation. But I've got this question. I'm going to toss to Senator Jordan first, but then ask Chuck to weigh in. You know, for a lot of regular people out there listening, right, there's this question of why in the hell is this vote count taking so long? Why can't we get this done faster? And my perception, and and I want to see if I'm right, um, is first there's the issue of all the absentee ballots, but that election officials in these key states, because they knew how closely their process would be scrutinized, are sticking with process, figuring in a legal challenge, good process survives. A rush process is vulnerable. Is that right? Is that how you see it, Jen? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, this is one of the most important elections of any of our lifetimes. Um, I think election officials know that, and it doesn't really matter what you know um, side you're rooting for, one way or the other. I mean, really, the vote counting process should be. Um, nonpartisan and should be process driven um, because we need for people to believe in the result and to think it's legitimate. And so there need to be rules in place and those rules need to be followed. Um, And the thing that's really kind of delaying things um, across the country is the fact that we have such a huge amount of absentee and mail-in ballots because of COVID-19. And unlike in Georgia, the counties were allowed to start processing before Election Day, not tabulating, but processing the absentees. In other states, um, they weren't allowed to do that. So they had millions and millions of absentee ballots that they were having to process and scan in. And so that's why it's taking so long. Kevin, I agree. We have to follow the law and uh, local control, local boards of uh, elections that are responsible for providing these counts and going through uh, the process that they're required to, I, I think is very important. We have to respect that process. And that's why it's so important for everyone to be patient while these results come in, while the process and the law is followed, so that we can have accurate counts and, uh, and people can trust in, uh, in the numbers that they see. 
You know, Kyle, I've been thinking about the fact that since Tuesday night, in some ways, this election has felt like a, a formulaic romance movie. Um, we know at the very beginning, boy and girl meet cute. Uh, we know they're going to have a fight. We know they're going to go their separate ways. They're going to misunderstand each other. And in the end, they're going to get back together. So we know from the very beginning of the picture how it's going to end up. And, and in some ways, the national election has followed that script. We predicted a long time ago that the absentee votes were so overwhelming that they would come in very slowly. We predicted that on election night, it could appear that Donald Trump had won because of in-person voting. We predicted that uh, states would caution people to be patient because there were many votes left to be counted. And we predicted that Donald Trump would nevertheless declare victory and begin filing lawsuits here and there. So we're at that point in the movie where the boy and girl have gone separate ways and we're waiting to see just how they'll get back together, <laughs> Kyle. <laughs> well, I think the... Yeah, the the important thing that I think was done is that yes, this feels a little predicted, so it may be a little less dramatic because it's you know because it's not turning out differently than we predicted, or, or people are not playing catch up. But I think what was done well in those predictions was provide voters and, and citizens in our state and across the country the information that they needed to follow this process responsibly and understand that there are legitimate reasons, processes that are laid out in law that are ensuring that the integrity of the vote is is good here in the state and in other states across the country, and that following those processes takes time so that when the president goes and tries to claim premature victory and, and when his campaign begins filing lawsuits, you can judge those claims based on what we know about the integrity of the process and, and whether or not that's being held up. And so it's interesting to me that the Trump campaign has filed one lawsuit in Georgia down in Chatham County. Um, I believe it's the Trump campaign and, and the Georgia Republican Party. But it deals with a what appears to me to be a relatively narrow process concern about the way absentee ballots are processed. And it doesn't actually allege something like illegal vote counting or the possibility that the election is being stolen. Um, and all of the education done in advance about the process helps us understand these lawsuits and claims as they arise. Okay, so thank you for that. But here's where my kind of cheery um, um, analogy breaks down. We all sit together in a movie theater and watch the romance play out, and we kind of cheer for the couple. That is not what's happening across America today. Um, the, the, the closeness of this election has instead has instead amplified and impassioned opposite sides in this election and the Trump lawsuits have contributed to that. I want to play each I want to play all of you a couple of sound bites uh, and then let's discuss the way the Trump campaign is responding to election returns. First, in Michigan, which we now know is in the Biden corner, uh, yesterday a crowd of Trump supporters gathered and they had a message as they chanted for what they and presumably the Trump campaign uh, wanted to happen. Listen. So in Michigan, where the vote counting continued and it put Joe Biden uh, up, 
uh, beyond where President Trump was, stop the count. In Arizona, a different crowd gathered and almost shut down a vote counting process uh, in, uh, in, a, in a, um, I think, Phoenix. Um, and uh, there, uh, where President Trump was behind, the crowd had this message. Jen, aside from everything else, the intellectual dishonesty and the hypocrisy is just astonishing. So this is literally an episode of Veep. I mean, there was literally an episode where (laughs) they would switch back and forth in terms of, you know, count all the votes or stop the count based on where they thought they were. And the fact that this is playing out for real um, in states and where people are really threatening election workers should be concerning to all of us. I mean, the good thing is, is that Michigan has an incredibly strong secretary of state. She has been very clear, um, Jocelyn Benson, about what the rules are and what's happening in transparency. And at the end of the day, I think that's all that she can do at this point. Um, I think the good thing is, is that as the margins grow, there's a lot less to kind of fuss about um, because it's just getting wider and wider in terms of Joe Biden. I'll, I'll jump in here, uh, too. I think, uh, Bill, I, I have permission to leave your tortured metaphor behind, I hope, because I just have to. But um, I do think that it's um, very damaging for any leader to attempt to undermine the credibility um, of the counting uh, without basis for it. And, and we haven't seen a lot of basis for it. And one thing I think has been good, I, I, I think you probably all noticed this as we've watched this on television, Fulton County literally has permitted a television camera to show what's going on. And I give folks in Fulton County who, as we know, have not handled elections particularly well for many uh, year, past years, letting the world literally see, here's what it looks like. And if people want to describe a nefarious, confusing, secretive process, it's going to be a little bit hard to do because you can actually turn on the TV and watch what's going on in Fulton County. Chuck, you said it yourself. Uh, we need to let the votes uh, be counted in every state. And and it should not be interpreted somehow as uh, my being partisan by suggesting that efforts to stop the vote uh, are somehow anti-Trump, Chuck. Well, I, I really think Kevin hit the nail on the head with transparency. It's really important that voters have confidence in the outcome, and by knowing that votes are being counted in accordance with the law and that the process is being done in a transparent manner where Republicans and Democrats have an opportunity to observe the process, I, th- I think that that's really important. There were initial reports out of Fulton County that uh, Republicans were told vote counting was going to stop um, in the e- on the evening of Election Day, and the counting continued after that. Now, I, you know, I haven't had a chance to look into that, but those kinds of uh, accusations that are put out there can cause questions in people's minds about the process that's taking place, and allowing a news camera into the uh, counting area so that so that that can be observed, I think, is a great move. That kind of transparency helps to instill confidence by voters and the general public to know that the process is consistent with the law and it's secure. Yeah, but the problem is literally, as we're sitting here talking about this, the president of the United States has just tweeted in all caps, stop the count, exclamation point. That's the kind of stuff that undermines the confidence 
that's the kind of stuff that endangers our local elected officials and also the people who are running the elections. And so it's one of those things that where when the guy with the most power in the world is using his platform to say this kind of stuff, I mean, we've really got to take a breath, step back. We need to count all the votes and we just need to make sure that um, people can really believe in the legitimacy of the result. All right, I've got to get to a break. Uh, we have a lot more to talk about on this edition of Political Rewind. We'll do that after these messages. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Newly re-elected Republican Representative Chuck F. Strachan, Gwinnett County, is with us, as is newly re-elected State Senator, Democrat uh, Jen Jordan, uh, Kyle Hayes, who is Peach Pod, a terrific podcast about Georgia politics. By the way, Kyle, do you have a? I didn't get a chance to check. I've been kind of busy. What's your newest uh, uh, podcast? The newest one. It already feels out of date. It was an election preview, but we're getting together today to give a latest update on the numbers, and so you'll be able to hear from us on our thoughts post-election by uh, tomorrow or the weekend. Okay, thank you very much. And Kevin Riley, the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, also with it. All right, uh, just to put a period around the presidential race for the time being, uh, Georgia votes continue to be counted. We do expect to have total results by the end of today. In fact, maybe by noon today, if nothing goes wrong, and we will know if Georgia has gone to Trump or Biden, if it goes to Biden the first time since Bill Clinton won Georgia in 1992 that a Democrat will have won the presidential race in uh, uh, this uh, state. And if Biden wins Georgia, uh, the path for Donald Trump to be reelected is, will grow incredibly, incredibly narrow, depending on what happens in Arizona, in Nevada, in Pennsylvania. So we'll see how all that plays out. Uh, but let me move on to the Senate race number one. Kevin Riley, we've been watching this race since, you know, 10 o'clock or so on Tuesday night when returns started coming in. Despite the fact that all the polling uh, showed a race that was going to be down to the wire between David Perdue and John Ossoff, uh, incumbent Republican David Perdue jumped out to a big margin. I think he was up to 54, maybe 53 point something percent of the vote and stayed there for a long time, looking like it was possible he could win without a runoff. As votes continue to be counted, his margin, as I said at the top of the show, he's still well ahead by well over 100,000 votes of John Ossoff. But increasingly, it looks as if Purdue may fall under 50% plus one, and that we'll, we will see a runoff, Kevin, in that race as well as in Senate race number two. Yeah, it did look like at first, you know, Purdue joined a lot, you know, of other Republican senators who did not have the close races that everyone was saying uh, they would. In particular, I mean, one that stood out to me was South Carolina. I mean, that was supposedly neck and neck, and uh, Lindsey Graham won handily, easily. It wasn't close at all. And I think it's it is important to point out, Bill, as you just did, um, while Purdue 
is really, really hoping to get to that 50% plus one to avoid a runoff. He's well ahead of Ossoff. I mean, uh, if it goes to a runoff, Republicans have always won runoffs in Georgia. And while it will be expensive and we will have to endure an awful lot of television advertising with the two races, um, it, it, I think it's hard to argue that Purdue's not in a good, good spot. Well, Jen, I think, you know, Kevin is right about history, but the dynamics are changing in this state dramatically. Yeah, I, well, and also, let's think about it this way. So if, if Peters picks up Michigan, which it looks like he's going he's gonna to be able to stay there, um, it's going to come down to these two Senate seats, the Purdue-Ossoff race and then the Leffler-Warnock race, um, to decide basically, the, you know, who controls the Senate one way or the other. And so the entire country is going to be watching Georgia. And, and we've already seen how much money is getting pumped into these various races. And so I, I just can't even imagine um, what we're going to have to be dealing with for the next two months. Hey, Chuck, you know, it's interesting, as you know, um, when we look at Senate races of incumbents around the country, there, there are some states in which the incumbent Republican has outperformed the president. Uh, uh, fairly handily. Um, in Georgia, though, I think this is really interesting. If you look at the count right now, the one released by the Secretary of State's office a little after nine, David Perdue has 2,433,000.2 votes. Donald Trump has 2,432,000.4 votes. They are virtually on the same path with Purdue outperforming the president by just a tiny bit, but certainly uh, when we, we we at one point thought maybe David Purdue's ongoing embrace of the president would hurt him, doesn't seem to have hurt him at this point. Well, I think that's right. I think uh, the consistency that we see in the votes there reflect um, the the thoughts of voters uh, on the national picture, and Senator Purdue has uh, worked very closely with the president and um and I think that it's consistent in the uh, in the votes that we see there, and any uh, any drop off as far as uh, Democrat support for John Ossoff, I think, is reflected there as well. And so um, uh, I understand that uh, you know we're, we may have results uh, later today or later this week, but uh, it appears to me that uh, runoff. Uh, either won't be necessary, or as Kevin said earlier, Republicans fare very well in runoffs historically, and so uh, we can expect that Senator Purdue will be uh, will be reelected for another term. Kyle, weigh in on that. I'm interested in uh, Chuck and Kevin both believing that the tradition of Republicans winning runoffs, and they're certainly correct. Whether uh, the times have changed a bit in that respect. Yeah, I think there's a there's a couple important factors at play. There's the national consideration about control of the U.S. Senate potentially coming down to these two races in a single state during a runoff. I also think there's a really interesting strategic question for both David Perdue and Kelly Leffler in the other Senate race. You know, earlier on in the campaign season, David Perdue was doing a little bit to distance himself from the president, but he ultimately landed on the strategy of tying himself really closely to the president. And in states like Maine, you know, Susan Collins, it appears, had a lot of Biden-Collins voters in Maine that gave her a very healthy margin for re-election. And Purdue's vote total ran so close to the president's. In Georgia, it is still possible that President Trump loses this state statewide, 
And both David Perdue and Kelly Loeffler have tied themselves so, so closely to a president who will have just lost reelection and just lost the statewide vote in this state. It's a question of whether or not they need to move themselves to try to, you know, attract more moderate voters um, in, a, in a runoff or whether they feel their path is to try to regain all of Trump's turnout and try to win a, win a runoff that way. So what's interesting to me is that, um, so there are two things we need to be thinking about, is that if Trump loses um, the statewide here and, and, and loses the presidency, let's just, let's just say that, let's say he, that Joe Biden wins. The question is, are Trump supporters, not your, not your GOP, GOP base in Georgia, but Trump supporters, are they going to come back out to support David Perdue and Kelly Loeffler? So that's one thing. The second thing is David Perdue has really, he ran a very different campaign than Kelly Loeffler did. Um, he was Mr., mm-hmm. you know, um, just down the middle looking at the camera, soft lighting, all that kind of stuff, kind of really tried to stay away from all the, the, the harsh kind of um, things that Loeffler was throwing out there. The two of them are really going to be tied together um, if, if both of them are going into a runoff. And I think that the whole idea of this pandemic profiteering is going to pop up and, and rear its head. So there are two things to really think about that this we're dealing with a very different kind of situation, um, especially if uh, President Trump is not reelected. I'll just push so, back a little um, on that. The, uh, the Go ahead, Senate, Chuck. Thank you. The Purdue Senate race also included a third party candidate who likely took some voters that would vote for Purdue in a runoff if there were to be one. And so um, so I'll, I'll just mention that as well with the fractured nature of the open primary election in the Leffler race and then also uh, the uh, third candidate in the Purdue race. I think that that bodes well for Republicans if there were to be a runoff. The um, Libertarian Party here in Georgia, actually, uh, Ryan Graham, the chair of the party, actually disputes this notion, um, although we certainly know of it as conventional wisdom. When this came up uh, on a show not long ago, he sent me a note saying, it's a mistake to think that the Libertarian vote comes from uh, 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 Republicans, and therefore, once a, a Shane Hazel, in this case, is off the ballot, they'll all go to the Republican candidate. Um, I can't remember, frankly, if he had any data to support that or not. In any case, he thinks that that may or may not be, that that may not, in fact, uh, be the case. I want to go to, uh, 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 Kyle, let me come to you on this. You know, the classic example of a Senate runoff in Georgia following a presidential election, in my mind, is 1992. In 19, and it's also apt here because it's the last time, as I pointed out earlier, that a Democrat won the presidential contest in Georgia. So after Bill Clinton uh, won his race here in 92, uh, there was a runoff between White Fowler, the Democratic incumbent, and Paul Coverdale, the Republican challenger, uh, that too forced by a libertarian candidate. Uh, President-elect Clinton actually came to Georgia and held a rally in Macon, a huge rally to uh, boost White Fowler's chances to win re-election. But, Kyle, Republican turnout was so strong based on their anger over having lost the state to Bill Clinton that it really, really whipped up turnout for Republicans, and Coverdale ended up winning that race relatively handily. To me, that's an interesting example of what we could see this time to support what Chuck F. Strachan is saying. 
On top of that, Bill, I think one vulnerability for Democrats is so much of Democratic politics for the last four years has been wrapped up in, in backlash and response to President Trump. And if, you know, regardless of the outcome in our state, if President Trump is ultimately defeated for reelection, how many Democratic voters are going to think the job is done now, now that President Trump hasn't been reelected? And so that's an interesting turnout challenge that Democrats face in, in getting their voters back to the polls again. Um, but I do think, you know, for Democrats this time around, they were not shy about having top Democratic surrogates like President Obama, Joe Biden, Kamala Harris come to the state to try to boost their turnout in the state this time around. And I wouldn't be surprised to see them back here in Georgia during the runoff. You know, I think Kyle makes a great point about the anti-Trump sentiment as a motivator, certainly. The other thing I've been wondering about in this is, I mean, we're sitting here, uh, you know, wondering if if Democrats can capture Georgia, if Joe Biden can win. And it, it comes down to all of these absentee ballots. It comes down to a massive effort on the Democratic side to encourage people to avoid uh, uh, to vote absentee. And when you look at the tight time frame in these Senate races, you just wonder if uh, will people vote absentee? Can you possibly get that many people to vote in that tight time frame? And how would you manage that? Would you want to encourage people to do that when we know getting the votes, the ballots back in time can be a struggle? I wonder what will happen. All right, let me get the final break of the show out of the way. And then I want to pick up on something Jen Jordan started to talk about, which was the different races that David Perdue and Kelly Leffler ran uh, in the uh, general election campaign and how it could be playing out, especially in Senate race number two, as we move to a runoff in that race. I also hope we have at least a couple minutes to talk about Democrats in the state, the failure to uh, mount the kind of challenge they hoped they would be able to mount, especially in the state house to Republican control. We'll try to get all of that in after these messages. Senator Jen Jordan, you pointed out a couple minutes ago that David Perdue ran a very different general election campaign than did uh, either Kelly Leffler or Doug Collins, for that matter. And, of course, that's because he was truly in a general election campaign where he had to try to bring some voters over uh, who are more moderate uh, than the Trumpy kinds of positions than, than to support the Trump positions he was taking for so long. Of course, Kelly Leffler went the other direction and uh, tried to tie herself as closely as possible to President Trump as she fought off Doug Collins. Um, so we also know that that allowed Raphael Warnock to skate along unfazed and, and introduce himself to the state in the most positive way possible. Um, so I want to play all of you, but uh, Jen, I'll ask you to comment first on this. We know the onslaught is coming now that Leffler's in a runoff, and the effort to tear down Raphael Warnock is going to begin very, very quickly. Um, Amelia Brock uh, found a spot that I haven't uh, gotten a chance to see yet. Uh, Raphael Warnock has already got a spot up anticipating what's going to happen in the runoff. Let's listen to the audio of this TV commercial. Raphael Warnock eats pizza with a fork and knife. Raphael Warnock once stepped on a crack in the sidewalk. Raphael Warnock even hates puppies. Get ready, Georgia. The negative ads are coming. Kelly Leffler doesn't want to talk about why she's for getting rid of health care in the middle of a pandemic. 
So she's going to try and scare you with lies about me. I'm Raphael Warnock, and I approve this message because I'm staying focused on what Washington could do for you. And by the way, I love puppies. <laughs> well, it's a very funny spot, Jen, uh, but not everything that the Republicans throw at him will be misstatements or lies. There's an awful lot in his record as a pastor that they'll be able to use in terms of positions he's taken. But go ahead and talk about the dynamic of how that race is going to shape up from your point of view. Yeah, I mean, I think from a strategic standpoint, I think the big question is, did Republicans make a mistake by not going after him for months and months. I mean, he's basically, like you said, skated through, has a really positive um, kind of persona out there based on millions of dollars of ads. He's a pastor. He's a reverend, all this kind of stuff, and very friendly, like liking puppies. I mean, that's a really good way to go into a runoff. And then for them to come in and just start beating him up, it, it may it may just not land because he's already had the opportunity to really kind of define who he is to the voters. And I think people are going to be incredibly skeptical um, of what Leffler is, is going to say about him, especially since, you know, Doug Collins has been saying for months that, that she's a liar and will do anything to get elected. I think, I think the ad Chuck. really, thank you. I think the ad really indicates that, he is concerned about differentiation, which may occur. And what I think is funny about the ad is he's complaining about unfair attacks while he is unfairly attacking Senator Leffler in that same ad. And what I expect we're going to see is more uh, of uh, the discussion about um, uh, the work that she's done in Washington, which I think very well reflects Georgia's values. She uh, certainly being from the Atlanta area, being able to communicate with voters in the metro Atlanta suburbs, the areas that I represent, to speak directly to women voters throughout the state. I think that uh, she is going to have a very strong case to make, and um, I expect that uh, that's anticipated. That's why he's running these types of ads so early. Kevin Riley, it probably the single most basic tenant of running a political campaign when you're dealing with a newcomer who the people don't know is you better define yourself before your opponent defines you. And, and that's what Jen Jordan is talking about. Warnock has had the chance to do that. Yeah, and, you know, they're both newcomers. And uh, Kelly Leffler got defined pretty quickly in ways that I, I think she that, that really Doug Collins had a lot to do with. So um, the other thing, part about this race that I keep wondering how it will play out is, I mean, think of, think of the potential sort of history here. I mean, Warnock is the pastor of Martin Luther King's church. He is attempting to become the first black man right, since Reconstruction to serve in, in the Congress for Georgia. Um, and, you know, I wonder, in the Senate. Uh, you know, or rather in the Senate, right. Um, and I, I just wonder if that will have any appeal or and if he will choose to try to operate and communicate at that sort of level with a important with a huge part of his potential constituency, as opposed to this, you know, getting in a wrestling match with advertising with Kelly Leffler, who has endless money. Um, as well. So, The other thing I'm keeping an eye on in this race is Democrats have gotten really comfortable running on the issue of health care and, and attacking Republicans on health care. We are likely to enter a period with the pandemic and 
the winter where cases are, are continuing to rise again and Democrats are likely to focus on not only the response to the pandemic, but on the impact uh, for people with pre-existing conditions, a lot of the same messages we saw on the trail. And the response to that from, from Kelly Loeffler, and, and maybe we'll see this from Purdue too, has been to change the discussion to more culture war-based issues, support for the police, views on Black Lives Matter. It's a question to me of, of which of those messages is actually going to resonate and drive turnout in a runoff where people are exhausted and, and kind of ready for this to be over, which one, which of those messages is actually closer to where people are at right now? Well, you know, there's another interesting thing about what you just said, Kyle, which is if, if Donald Trump does in fact lose this election, it is what is the legacy of his messaging of uh, what his philosophy has been throughout. Does a Kelly Leffler stick with the messages? Does that live on? I suspect, of course, it does. Uh, but it'll be fascinating to watch how that goes. Chuck Efstration, I do want to make a different point about Warnock. Um, he underperformed in this uh, jungle election. He only won about 32% of the vote. Now, I, given there were 20 people on the ballot, but none of his Democratic opponents particularly drew well. And for him to have come through this at only 32% of the vote strikes me as meaning he's got a long way to go to build his own base uh, moving forward. Do you think I'm right about that? And then I'll let you weigh in on that too, Jen. I agree. And just to add on to that, he had complete support from the Democrat establishment across the state and was very well funded in his campaign. So just to further make your point, I think that those are some very serious questions going forward as to what his performance would be in the runoff. Yeah. yeah, I think that's why it's so significant if um, John Ossoff makes the runoff, too. Look, if, if you have two really strong candidates, two really strong campaigns running um, that can really hit the totality of the state um, and appeal to various and different voters, especially, um, you know, younger voters are really drawn to Warnock and to John. Um, and, and that's really where we have growth and where, you know, the future of the Democratic Party is, frankly, in, in this state. So I think that's why it's super important, um, the impact that an all-soft-Purdue runoff will have on this. And really, they would just run um, like a ticket or a team, um, which is exactly what's going to happen to Purdue Leffler. And, and I think an all-soft-Warnock ticket is going to be a lot stronger. Um, all right. Let me... Um... Uh, start with you on this, Kevin. We know that the state Democrats really put a huge effort into picking up what they hoped was going to be a majority in the Georgia House. They wanted to pick up. It was it was a big job. 16 seats would have uh, needed to change hands for the Democrats to take control. But not only did they not pick up uh, 16 seats, they had a dismal showing. They were only how many seats did the Democrats pick up, uh, Chuck? I don't have the numbers in front. Of me. Not one in many. each chamber, I think it was right. One in each <laughs> chamber is that it? Okay, I knew it was very, very low. Um, so, uh, Kevin, you know, Republicans continue to control the House, and uh, David Ralston is almost certainly going to be reelected as Speaker, despite the fact that there is a challenge to his leadership. But there aren't enough Democrats, new Democrats coming in to uh, make a difference in voting against him, Kevin. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think there's any way to look at what happened in Georgia from the Democratic side, uh, you know, if you're a Democrat and not and not come to the realization that it was disappointing and that you, despite what optimism you may have on a national level or even statewide, that it, it for some reason it didn't play out in the in the legislature, which is the place where you really do affect everyday Georgians' lives the most. And more importantly, now the Republicans will control that reapportionment process and therefore probably, almost certainly, find a way to guarantee that they remain in power for 10 more years. The, uh, the takeaways for me were an incredible amount of money was spent by Democrat organizations, both sides, but Democrat organizations particularly focusing on turnout and that that ultimately fell flat. And in fact, the minority leader, Democrat leader in the state house lost his uh, reelection, who was a very strong leader. Um, and that, I think, is a reflection of uh, uh, Georgians' acceptance, approval, and support for the Republican agenda, agenda at the state capitol. Now, uh, reapportionment was just mentioned. And if you look historically, certainly in the last few decades, um, the uh, reapportionment process. Uh, had to be redone when Democrats were in charge by the federal courts. They had to redraw districts after the fact. The only time the federal courts recently have not drawn our districts was after a Republican reapportionment under an Obama Department of Justice 10 years ago. And so I, th I think that this is a reflection of Georgia voters' support for Republicans at the state capitol. So let me just jump Jen? in really quick. I'm going to say basically three things. Um, COVID money gerrymandering. First, COVID Democrats were not able to campaign. They actually followed the rules. They didn't want to spread the disease, while Republicans had rally after rally, went door to door, and acted like nothing was going on. Number two, money. In terms of being outspent, Republican candidates five to ten times as much as Democratic candidates. And then third, when we're talking about flipping seats, we're talking about flipping seats that were drawn to be Republican so, of course, it's going to be an uphill battle. Look, we're disappointed, but I think the whole idea that we fell flat when we're sitting here talking about possibly um, the state of Georgia going for Joe Biden, I think that that is just fool's gold to think that. Kyle, I know you want to jump in. you got about, a, about 30 seconds. I think uh, there's a Democrats have some tough questions to answer about this, but I thought one really interesting note from the results across the table was that almost no incumbents lost. And with COVID being the overriding issue this year, it seems like voters wanted to hold President Trump and uh, maybe statewide Democrats accountable, but didn't see the legislature as a place for accountability on COVID. Okay. I'm sorry to interrupt. We're completely out of time, except Jen Jordan, you made your reputation fighting the abortion bill this last year, and it did not change votes, interestingly enough, in terms of swaying people toward the Democratic Party. And that's something I want to talk about in shows to come, and I'll invite you to come back to talk about that, Senator Jordan. That's it. Kevin Riley, Kyle Hayes, Chuck Evstration, Jen Jordan, thank you for being with us. We are back with another live show at two because we expect we'll know how the state of Georgia went in the presidential race. Until then, take care, stay healthy, wear a mask, and get your flu shot. See you at 2.